Good morning. Happy uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving. I help, hope that everyone enjoyed your holiday. Um, we're continuing on in Romans chapter 8 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 12 through 25. As you're turning there to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25, let me just uh, briefly refresh your memory about what Paul has been teaching us as the Holy Spirit moved him to uh, write this epistle to the church in Rome. Um, so basically up to this point, we've, uh, we've seen that Paul lays out in... Uh, more detail and clarity than any place else in the Bible what the gospel is, what the Christian message is. And in the first few chapters, chapters one through three, Paul lays out why the gospel is important, why, why we need it, and it's because we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat as far as that is concerned. We're, we're all without excuse before God. And if left to ourselves, we're all under condemnation before God because of our sin. And then we moved on to see what God did uh, uh, to remedy our sin. And it only makes sense that God is the one who provides the remedy for sin. We're, we're sinners. We're depraved. We're condemned. And so... It stands to reason that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, but thank God uh, he did provide a way in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation for our sins. In other words, Christ died on the cross in our place, absorbed the wrath of God so that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then we went on to see how we receive that blessing of salvation that Jesus worked out. And we saw in chapters 4 and 5 that it is through faith and faith alone, apart from our works, we simply receive with the empty hand of faith the gift of salvation that uh, Christ has procured for us. And we uh, saw... Um, how Paul develops the doctrine of justification by faith. And we saw that justification is when God declares us righteous in his sight on account of what Christ has done. Then we, we uh, moved on to see the practical effects of the gospel in our lives. First in chapter 6, we're set free from bondage to sin. We're uh, called to reckon ourselves, to no longer be uh, slaves of sin, to be under sin's dominion. But at the same time, in chapter 7, this um, freedom from sin is not complete in this life. We're never completely free from the indwelling uh, power of sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul, even in looking at his own situation. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death in chapter 7 and verse 24. But then as we saw last time, for the first time in the book of Romans, Paul began to discuss the Holy Spirit. 
And we saw in verse, verses 1 through 11, the Spirit enables us to fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law as we walk according to the Spirit's power and not according to the flesh. He, he renews our minds and uh, he himself, the Holy Spirit himself, is the guarantee of our future resurrection. And it turns out, as we saw in the adult Sunday school class this morning, actually, our prayer meeting, um, we looked through Romans chapter 8 and the first 27 verses and noticed 15 times in which the, um, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. And so Romans chapter 8 is quite a theology of the Holy Spirit, it turns out. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, verses 12 through 25, really continues uh, Paul's unfolding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you'll, you'll see what I mean. So that brings us up to date. Here we are up to verse 12. And in verses 12 through 14, uh, the whole passage is really about how to live and have hope as a Christian. But in verses 12 through 14, uh, in answer to that question, Paul's answer is live by the Spirit. So let me read for you verses 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So in verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, but to live uh, to live according to the flesh. Because our salvation is by God's sheer grace. And by that I mean there's absolutely nothing that we contribute, nothing that we add, nothing that we could add. It's all of grace. We contribute nothing, but ironically, we owe everything. That's the flip side of grace. We contribute nothing, but we owe everything. And we sing about this reality quite a bit in the songs that we sing in worship. One of them by Elvina Hall in 1865, Jesus Paid It All. In the re refrain of that hymn, we sing, Jesus paid it all. And we've seen that clearly in the chapters 1 through 3 in Romans. But then the refrain goes on to say, all to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And that's simply what Paul restates here. We are debtors, but not to the flesh, that is not to our, um, our, our physical bodies, our um, our appetites, bodily appetites that give expression to our sinful nature. That's what Paul means by the flesh. We're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And then that raises the question, does that mean 
that we can coast through the Christian life and not worry about sin. That's what a lot of that's the impression that a lot of people have about the Christian message. All of grace. Christ has done it all. Faith alone, which is all true. So then does that mean sin doesn't matter in our lives? Does that mean that we can we can coast through the Christian life and basically let go and let God. And Paul puts that mistaken understanding to rest right away. Notice his warning in verse 13, first half of verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, remember that's our sinful nature working through our bodily appetites, you will die. That's Paul's warning. So, yes, it turns out, sin is still a big deal for Christians. And yes, it turns out, the Christian life takes effort on our part. It takes will. And the warning here is that if the goal and direction of your life is to please your flesh, to indulge your sinful nature, rather than to please God, rather than to live for God, in the end, you will be condemned for your sin and separated from the goodness and mercy of God forever. That's Paul's warning, straight up. And what's at stake? Well, the Puritan... Theologian John Owen, who lived in the 1600s in England, he wrote in uh, this massive book that he wrote called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. And it's about this one verse, verse, Romans 8 and verse 13. It's masterful. There's a modern um, paraphrase of it or abridgment of it. Uh, written by Chris Lundgaard, and it's called The Enemy Within. But John Owen, in that volume, The the Mortification of Sin and Believers, made this well-known statement, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We're going to get into that more. But that's what's at stake. Life or death. And the point is that so much of the Bible, so much of the New Testament is written from the perspective of people who merely profess faith in Christ. We're warned over and over again. It's not just saying that we're a Christian that saves us or that even means that we are Christians. It, it, it's, it is that we are to confess with our mouths, but it's also our lives. It's how we work out our faith in following the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that he is actually our Lord. And so verse 13 is a a test to those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, live a certain way. 
and their lives are characterized not by living according to the flesh, but conversely, second half of verse 13, Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Once again, the words of John Owen, be killing sin. This is what Christians do. We're not content with the existence of sin in our lives. There's a particular manifestation of sin. Fill in the blanks. The Christian doesn't say, at least in terms of pattern of life, ah, it's okay, it doesn't matter that I do this or that, that clearly is forbidden by the word of God. Because salvation is by grace. Paul caricatures that view in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we say, let us sin that grace may abound? And the answer here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 is that the believer is not content with indwelling sin, but wages war against it, war to the death. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that he says, by the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit of God. The, the, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, whom Paul has introduced in the previous verses in Romans chapter 8. This is not what we do according to our own resources. This is not our willpower. This is not we, what we bring to the occasion, to the equation. The source of this power by which we put to death the deeds of the body is none other than God himself, the Holy Spirit. And what that all implies is that we're, we're believers. This is something the child of God does because Paul said previously in verses uh, 9 and 10 that believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. The Holy Spirit is the one who taught us the gospel to begin with. And so those who are by the Spirit putting to, the, the, uh, to death the deeds of the body understand the gospel of grace. And it is by the Holy Spirit that Christ is indwelling us so this is not mysterious. A lot of people have the idea that when you do something by the Spirit, what that means is you turn off your mind because the Holy Spirit is leading you. You turn off your effort because the Holy Spirit is leading you. Or you do something irrational and, and supposedly spiritual. That's walking in the Spirit. That's manifesting the power of the Spirit. That's living by the Spirit. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit works within believers who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the gospel, putting their hope and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit works in and through us 
even through our wills. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so, if we do anything by the Spirit in obedience to the word of God, we obey and it is the Spirit working in and through us. Same thing here. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, what does that mean? Well, look with me in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is a parallel passage that sheds light on Paul's teaching here in Romans 8. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 8. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, that sounds familiar. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is, what is of this world? What are some examples of that, Paul? Well, sexual immorality. Why does Paul talk about sexual immorality so much? Does he have a hang-up with it or something? No, it's because throughout the history of fallen mankind, we use our bodies in sinful ways. This is nothing new. It was true in Paul's time. It was true before Paul's time, and it's been true ever since. We use our bodies for impurity. So sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which means like uh, un uncontrolled anger and such. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on to say, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Note, by the way, this is another subject. But notice that the wrath of God is coming not just because of unbelief. The wrath of God is coming on account of sins. And then Paul continues in verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. So now here's more examples. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So put to death the deeds of the flesh means put to death things like this. Activities, lifestyles like that that are against the will of God but consistent with our fallen human sinful nature. Put to death those things. Well, how do we do that? Appealing to John Owen again, he said, to, to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all his strength, vigor, and power so that he cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actions of his own. So how do you kill sin within you? 
you deprive it of its strength and power. We aim to kill all that, and then here's John Owen again, all that inclines, entices, impels to evil, rebels, opposes, fights against God. And what Paul has been teaching us in Romans chapter 8 is that it starts in our minds, remember? The, the, the carnal mind is what we were all born into this world with, a mind that is set on sin and the things of this world. But then the Holy Spirit renews our minds. So after conversion, for the first time, we're able to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And what does that mean? That means things that are holy, things that please God, things that are not sinful, things that glorify God. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicted us of our sin to begin with. And the Holy Spirit is the one who caused us to be born again so that we would get the gospel and understand the cross. And so the Holy Spirit enables us to think of life and to think of sin in light of the cross. And that's really how we put to death our sin. It's, it's, it's not just the fruit. That's what a lot of people do. They just concentrate on the outward manifestation of sin. But to put sin to death by the Spirit means putting sin to death at the root. At the root, not just the fruit. And so we bring our sin to the cross. And, and we think about sin in those terms. Sin is that for which Jesus died on the cross. Sin is that for which the wrath of God is coming. Sin is that which prevents me from pleasing God. Sin opposes God. Sin is rebellion against God. And I want to love God. I want to glorify him. I, I want to give my life, my whole self to God because of what Jesus has done for me. This is what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. This is how we put sin to death. And you'll notice what Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8. Here's the benefit. You will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will enjoy the blessings of life in Christ now and for all eternity. Notice that a life of mortifying our sin, putting the deeds of the flesh to death, but the power of the Spirit brings us assurance of salvation. Paul says that in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Notice, by the way, 
Those who are led by the Spirit of God are not those who act crazy, turn their minds off, or let go and let God. But those who are led by the Spirit of God are those who are putting to death the deeds of the body, just in the context. Then Paul moves on in the second place to tell us that not only should we live by the Spirit, but we should also pray like a child of God. Pray like a child of God. Notice verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Paul talks about slavery quite a bit in the book of Romans. Primarily, Romans chapter 6, our relationship to sin is compared to slavery. Before conversion, slaves to sin. After conversion, slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness. And Paul picks up on that theme of slavery here in verse uh, 14 to uh, verse 15 to remind us that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. People who are unsaved, who are still slaves to sin, at, at times they have clarity of thought and they realize that all is not well between them and God. They're sinners, and God is holy, and their conscience accuses them, and that, is, that leads them to fear, fear of condemnation, fear of judgment, fear of eternal destruction. And that's not the way a child of God is supposed to live that's not our mental space, if you will. We don't have that spirit of fear. Instead, second half of verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so here's another aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is involved in the blessing of adoption. We're, we're sons and daughters of God by adoption. And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, in our consciences, in our souls to give us a sense of that. To, to give us that filial relationship with God. Abba is an Aramaic term that loosely translated means daddy. It's the closest parallel that we would have in the English language. And so the Holy Spirit produces this closeness in us, in our relationship with God, this sense that God is our father, even our daddy, that we can come to God at any time and at any place with anything. And he cares for us. He wants to hear from us. He wants to bless us. He wants to relate with us. And all by the 
power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he's the spirit of adoption. And notice how the spirit of adoption affects our prayer life. We've seen it already. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. We, we cry. So our prayers as Christians, because of the Holy Spirit, our prayers are not just rote, R-O-T-E. They're, they're not just ritualistic. They're not just monotonous. They're, to use an example, they're, they're not like Muslim prayers. By the way, Islam teaches that what I'm telling you right now is blasphemy. It's impossible for human beings to have a child-father relationship with God. That's blasphemy. And so they have, a, they have a certain pattern of prayer, a certain formula that they say on their prayer clause so many times a day, facing Mecca and all of that. That is not Christian prayer. It's not like that. Christian prayer comes from the heart and it's the, it's the cry of a child to his or her father empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this relationship that we have with God, God is our Father, greatly affects our prayer life. Look with me in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, another sort of parallel passage. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, notice what Paul writes here. In fact, if you back up to verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, <clears throat> born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says here in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that this is one of the goals of the incarnation of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that we might receive adoption as sons. This is what God was after. God is not just gathering to himself pardoned criminals. He is not just gathering to himself those who were on death row and now they have clemency. No, God is gathering to himself sons and daughters. And this is what motivated God to send Jesus into the world. And then notice in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. Notice how constantly in Romans 8, throughout the New Testament, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son are used interchangeably. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is what it's all about from God's perspective. This is very important. Our, our relationship with God as our Father, we as His children, and then praying that way. 
praying throughout the day, realizing God always sees you, he always loves you, he's always concerned with what's going on in your life, confessing your sin to the Lord as as a, a child would confess sin to his father, expressing your love for your father in heaven, being personal, not just formal, relating intimately and personally with the God of heaven. And then notice how this progresses in Paul's thinking in verse 16. So back to Romans 8 and verse 16. Notice the the progression here as we're walking according to the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and as uh, we're praying like children of God. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's confirmation There's assurance within our spirit that God's our Father. We're his children. Try to explain that chemically or mathematically. It's it's a spiritual relationship. It's, It's a spiritual dynamic. The child of God knows God's his Father. He or she son or daughter. And that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness. And then verse 17, this this assurance of our relationship with God, which um, gives voice in our prayers, our, our crying out to God, in turn equips us to suffer for God. Verse 17, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is a reality check. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulations. The apostle Paul said, said to one of the churches that he planted in Acts chapter 14, um, you will have tribulation. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We live in a fallen world and there's still fallenness within us through our sin that, that remains. This is not heaven. This is not our ultimate destination. And the world is against God and the things of God and the people of God. So no wonder that this life for the believer is filled with suffering. It's not that God takes away our suffering. It's that he puts it into perspective. And he tells us that our suffering is isn't the end of the story. There's something beyond it. And that leads us to the third thing that Paul teaches uh, us here, and that is to keep our eyes on the prize. Verses 18 through 25. Keep your eyes on the prize. Well, what is the prize? 
we've already been given a hint. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and we're going to be glorified with him. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and there are sufferings in this present time, if you suffer, it is not necessarily because your faith is weak. It is not necessarily because you're in sin. I say not necessarily because sometimes that's actually true. But not necessarily. Jesus was acquainted with suffering and he never sinned. Suffering in this present time is part and parcel with the character of this present time. So what the Bible does is it doesn't say pretend as if there is no suffering. What it does is it puts our suffering into perspectives and that's what Paul does. So he says these sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Before conversion, we were living for the here and now. We hardly ever talked or uh, thought about heaven. We just assumed we're going to heaven, but we didn't give it any thought. We never thought about, well, how do you actually get there? What's heaven going to be like? What's the God of heaven like? Instead, everything was the here and now, and so our suffering dominated our perspective because it sullied our here and now. Our, our present life was our whole life. But now that we're saved, we're realized there's glory beyond this whole avenue of reality and existence and blessing has been opened up to us. And it's so vast and so big and it's going to last for so long and it's so glorious that it completely overwhelms this present life and its sufferings. That's what Paul says. Not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then Paul goes on to describe it, this future glory. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This is, this is a inanimate creation. The rest of creation. It's under a curse. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. You could read about that in Genesis chapter 3. There's death, pain in childbirth, uh, thorns and thistles and uh, conflict among people, sinners, all part of the fall. And the fall has affected all of creation, it turns out. But creation is in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the of the children of God. That's called the new earth. You can read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21 and Isaiah chapter 66. It's the new earth. All of creation is going to be redeemed. All of creation will be freed from bondage to corruption. The curse will finally be removed. Verse 22. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, which includes a whole bunch of things, including pandemics. It's part of the creation groaning. It's part of life in a fallen world. And then it gets personal in verse 23. It includes ourselves and our physical existence. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And what's that? That's everything that Paul's been describing so far. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers and the Holy Spirit's ministry within us. That's the first fruits of the Spirit. And what what do the first fruits point toward? But the full harvest. And that's what the Holy Spirit does within us as he enables us to put to death the deeds of our body, as he does bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and he inspires our crying, our our prayers, he's ultimately pointing us to something much greater, a full harvest. And that full harvest includes the redemption of our bodies. So the second half of verse 23 we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you're a believer, you've already been redeemed. You're forgiven, you're justified, you're sanctified, you're being sanctified. You're already redeemed. But there's also a future aspect to your redemption. And that future aspect of your redemption includes your physical existence. Your body is going to be resurrected and glorified to be like Christ's resurrected and glorified body, it turns out. We're going to be free from death and sickness and pain and suffering, free from sin itself. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Paul was looking forward to. This is what we're called to look forward to. The redemption of our bodies, which completes our adoption. And this forms the basis of our hope which Paul says in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We have future hope, a future glory. And that's what puts this life into perspective with all of its suffering. And that is what our goal is is keep your eyes on the prize. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul put it this way. I can get there. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Those are 
um, different words, but similar thought from the Apostle Paul trying to tell us to keep your eyes on the prize. Live in light of glory. Doesn't mean ignore this life, ignore what's going on in and around you, but it means that we should keep it all in perspective. This life is not it. There's a way better life coming after this. And it's all about Christ and his glory and his righteousness and his, his love for us and our love for him. That's where we're supposed to set our minds. And at this time in our nation's history, this is a very important lesson for us. Christians are called to be light and darkness and we're called to be salt in the earth. And so we should speak up for truth and for righteousness, and for justice, and for God in a fallen world, for sure. But that is not our main ministry. That is not our main focus. That's not where we're supposed to set our minds. We're supposed to set our minds above where Christ is. We're supposed to think about future glory and have our hope bound up in the right place in such a way that people will see how we live and the attitude that we have when we, when we live and ask us the reason for the hope that is within us. May God have mercy on each one of us.